The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. The following is a presentation of the SpeedSport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his views in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. From the Speed Sport Podcast Studios, powered by My Race Pass, here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in, pull those belts tight. We'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. We're brought to you today by Brady Mechanical Services, HVAC install, maintenance and repair, Brady Mechanical Service at gmail.com. Today's guest, former driver, racing analyst for ESPN and Fox. As a NASCAR driver, he won in four different series, Mike. The K&N Pro Series and the three national series of NASCAR Trucks, Bush, and Cup. Achievements include 1990 Bush North Series Rookie of the Year, 1990 and 91 Bush North Series Most Popular Driver, 1991 Bush North Series Champion, 1992 Bush Series Rookie of the Year, 1995 Winston Cup Series Rookie of the Year, as a cup driver, 278 races over 11 years, two wins, 41 top 10s, and six poles. He is well known 
for winning the 2003 Carolina Dodge Dealers 400, beating Kurt Busch in the closest finish in Cup Series history, .0002 seconds. And that's a hell of a video if you haven't seen it. Ladies and gentlemen, from the state of Maine, we give you Ricky Craven. Ricky, say hi to Mike Wallace. Gentlemen, how are you? <laughs> we are doing well, man. I always hear those intros for our guests, and it's like, okay, the show's over. We got, we got everything <laughs> condensed there. But thanks for joining us today, Ricky. We... Mike, we've been trying pretty hard for a while, and uh, it's great to finally get together with you. Yeah, well, I appreciate it very much. And what the, the concept of the show is, uh, the millions of people around the world that listen to this show, everybody thinks they know you from all your success, but nobody not, knows how you got here. And uh, that's what we'd like to bring to our audience is where did Ricky Craven, growing up in the state of Maine, there you go. Uh, how did you get interested in motorsports or any type of racing? So I'm going to let you take it. Yeah, why us. was it racing and not potato farming? That's what I want. Yeah, know. or more sled dog, <laughs> sled dog racing or uh, snowmobile racing. There, yeah. there was a little snowmobile racing uh, later on in my life. But um so, so the main part of the equation is a little bit abstract because most people don't associate Maine with motorsports or, or with, uh, with NASCAR. But like most people that, that make it to the NASCAR ranks, their dad or mom or family had influence. And my earliest memories, most vivid memories as, as a child, were sitting in the grandstands at Speedway 95 in Bangor, Maine, watching my dad compete. And the sound, the smell, uh, the uh, excitement, enthusiasm, it, it drove me. So that was the catalyst. So, so you'd go there with your family? Your, what kind of car did your dad drive? What class did he race in? My dad raced a 63 Ford Fairlane in the top division, the sportsman or late model uh, Mike, he had a, a uh, it was rally red, sort of an orange car. What what distinguished that car was uh, car number 12, which is what I started as a 15-year-old. I raced car number 12, like my dad. And what distinguished that car, though, was it had a big spark plug, like a champion spark plug mounted on the roof. And nobody really understood that. There was a story behind it. And the car owner was a guy named Bernie Baker. It's sort of a racing name, right? Bernie Baker. And Bernie was colorblind. And on the night races in Bangor, Maine at Speedway 95, the lighting wasn't great. He had a very difficult time differentiating all the cars and, and which was his car. And uh, that spark plug gave him, gave him that differentiation. And, uh, of course, it was easy – this one night, I remember my dad winning the Triple Crown, the Heat, the semi-feature, and the feature. So if he was out front, it was pretty easy to, to find him. But uh, when I think back to those early days, that would have been 72, 1973, 74. My, uh, there were 30, 35 cars every Saturday night competing. That's cool. The So you're telling me that that was a big old spark plug on top of the car? Is that what you're well, saying? Or just, I'm going to send you guys. I'm going to send you a picture, and you'll. That would be hell. On, that would be hell on aerodynamics. Yes. Yeah. So was so. It's kind of a funny topic since you mentioned that. Was the spark plug straight up and down, or was it angled like a rocket? You know, like no, they no, they did they did streamline it. They had it laid down. You know, the uh, narrow part, the top of uh, the conductor 
pointing forward. And uh, I, I, I never thought twice about it because it, every car he ever drove for Bernie Baker had it. And it, it, it truly wasn't until I was 14 years old and we were building my first race car that uh, we went to Bernie and asked for a few parts. And that's when I, and he asked if he could put the spark plug on my car. <laughs> and I said, no, no, we'll buy our parts. I'm not going to have the spark plug on the car. But, but then, the, then the story was shared with me. By, by any chance, was your dad's nickname Sparky at the time? <laughs> his, 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 Good one. his name was Lefty. And uh, I had always assumed that was because he went in circles like the rest of us. There you go. So <laughs> though that era, when you watched your dad race, Ricky, I heard you say you started racing at 15. But back up, when did you remember, what, what age were you when you remember dad with the spark plug car? Yeah, so I would have been six, seven. Okay. Um, I think I remember uh, 71, he had a... Uh, he had a 57 Chevrolet, but but did race in, in the top division, and uh, it was a it was a great memory. I mean, it seems like it was the Daytona 500 every Saturday night. Uh, but then, you know, later in life, when you go back to the track, it's hard to it's hard to put it in perspective, right? It just didn't quite feel the same. It wasn't quite as exciting later in life as it was early on, right? Yeah. You know, you and I both competed under the lights at Daytona, so yeah. <laughs> it's pretty hard to go back. Pretty hard to beat that, isn't it? But if you had done yeah. it with a spark plug on top of your car, we'd still be talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> listen, hey, listen, don't rule it out. I mean, who, who knows if that was an advantage or a disadvantage, right? <laughs> so at that time when your dad was racing, was that a race car that he kept at home or someone else took care of? Did you? I guess what I'm asking, did you ever get to work on the car? Or, or you know, act like you worked on the car, put it that way. I did I did not, Mike. The car was about forty miles from where we lived and it was uh it was a shop that Bernie Baker owned and it you know, my dad my dad never got paid to drive, but he did drive for it for the family. It was Bernie Baker and his two sons and they were very serious about it. The same way uh everybody across the country uh, would be serious about their, their weekend racing. And later in life, I, I did work with a, a, a school friend. I was 12, 13 years old. And, and, uh, I was part of a team with my friend, Greg Vino, who was racing. And I, uh, I, I only did that because I wanted to be at the track and, and I convinced my parents to buy this 1970 Chevelle that was sitting in a pasture, but it had a roll cage. And they told me if we finished the car, I could race it. And we finished it two years later. Well, outstanding. So that was a 70 Chevelle was the first race car you had. Correct. Imagine that. Yeah. Right. Who wouldn't want that back today? Yeah. No kidding. Mm. Had a little rally stripes on it. That'd be smoking. Oh, man. Yeah. So where where was the? Uh, do you remember where your first race at was in that seventy Chevelle by any chance? I I do, but but even more importantly, I remember where my second race was. It was the same track, Unity Unity Raceway. Being a new driver, I had to start last, and the reason the second race was was so significant is because. I went from last to first, won the race, and on that night, 
Bobby Allison had flown in from Pocono. Um, and Bobby had, at one time, Bobby told me he, he had 28,000 hours left seat in his Piper. And when he was the Kyle Bush of that era, I mean, he raced everywhere, anywhere he had the opportunity. So he was a guest driver at Unity Raceway in the middle of the state of Maine. And, uh, and I won that night and he came over to congratulate me and gave me his, uh, Gatorade hat. Well, what a special treat that was, I bet. Yeah, it's really phenomenal. And what I remember about the, the night, uh, beside that, which was, was the, the most valuable, I remember coming into the, the pit area with my trophy and all these drivers were coming toward me. And I thought, isn't that cool? They were really happy for me. <laughs> and, and you almost know where this is going. Don't you? <laughs> and, and each of them gave me a mulligan. They shook my hand and said, kid, congratulations. First win. But if you ever race me that way again, I'm going to wreck your ass. <laughs> and, and hand on heart. I didn't race this way later in life, but. In that race, the second race I ever ran, I took a piece of every car I went by. I, I just thought that's how you race. <laughs> and um, you, you were believing the rubbing was racing was the real deal, right? <laughs> totally, totally. And uh, I was humbled by the end of the night because every one of them said, "You won't ever do that again." Humpy Wheeler was on the show one time, and what he said, he said he called that hitting everything except for the ladies' room. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so, so as, as you're um, – that's that's race night number two, and you start in the back, you win the feature, you, you get some type of accolades from everybody in the field, good or bad, kind of right. good, but don't run into everybody. So week three comes about what goes on from there. So it, it, it really got a little bit tougher just because I think I surprised everyone and I didn't have any etiquette. I mean, I just drove the wheels off the car and literally used them. Uh, I used them up on the way by and, and, um, so we did win again, but, uh, we built a new car over the winter and we had, a phenomenal second year. And I think we had 18 races and won 12 of them. And, um, so why do you think you had that much success? I mean, I, I'd like to compliment you on having the success right out of the box, but what kept that going? Was it that you're that great race car driver? You had a really better car than everybody else or a combination of all that? Well, I think it's a combination and, and, but, if you break it down, I think it goes back to the very first time I hit the racetrack, which was a testing day, and my car wasn't quite ready. So my dad had arranged me the opportunity to, to drive this 62 Impala. A guy named Dennis Vino owned it, and he ran last with it every week. Uh, Dennis was a great guy, but he was a horrible driver. <laughs> and... I hopped in his car primarily because it was safe, a big, heavy car. And I went out on the track for the first time and I didn't come in until it ran out of gas. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just loved it. I embraced it. I couldn't get enough of it. 
and I rolled in after it started sputtering and most of the pit area came over and just sort of gathered around. And I said to my dad, I said, did I do something wrong? And he goes, no, you were just a second and a half faster than the car had ever run ever. And so the significance of this story is that from that moment, really to the end of my career, I always had really, really good people working on my cars. And I think that people instinctively want to be a part of something exciting. And I truly had great crew members. I, all, I Now, I was always short on money, but I was never, ever short on help, ever. And I think that's a very, very important component of, of the success that I had. So when you race there in Maine, I just uh, to understand exactly what you just said about help. And it's kind of like the Midwest. When we grew up in the Midwest racing, we had a lot of guys that wanted to come hang out with you and, and go exactly. to the racetrack. Is that the same thing that was going on in Maine at that time? Exactly. I mean, you, you know, you have a guy that would uh, pack the wheel bearings every week and would, would do, uh, uh, and the, do the brakes and uh, adjust the front end and you had guys that did body work or detailed the car. You had guys that, that were really good with the engine. And I mean, every one of them were equally important. Um, but there were teams that I competed against early on in my career where it was like the driver, his brother, and his wife, right? <laughs> like yeah. they, and uh, so I always had a lot of great support. So, Ricky Craven, and we'll take, go to break, and we'll come back and talk. We're going to the first mega team, yeah, right? We're going to uh, talk about the early days of racing with Ricky Craven some more in just a second. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Brady Mechanical Services, HVAC install, maintenance, and repair. Brady Mechanical Service at gmail.com. Talking the early days of racing with Ricky Craven. And once again, here's Mike Wallace. Ricky, we realize that you had one of the bigger teams in regards to people helping you up there in the state of Maine. <laughs> it's just fun to say. I love it. I love saying it. I never knew that until Jeff said it earlier. I said Maine. He goes, no, it's the state of Maine. And so uh, after uh, your second year, you guys had uh, started with that 70 Chevelle. You come out the second year and you won better than half the season. Uh Take us from there. That's what we're trying to figure out, How, where and how you got to be so good. So let's roll into year three. Was it the same car, different car, different people, different racetracks? Pretty much every year, Mike, I graduated to another level and um, won the track championship uh, in 83. Moved on to racing around New England. Won a, won a race in either 83 or I'm sorry, 84, 85, and made enough money on a Saturday night to go to Oxford and race in the Oxford 250, um, qualified well. The Oxford 250, I know you competed in it. It's, um, it's probably the most identifiable race in the state of Maine. And, and let me stop you there. I, I unfortunately have never competed in that race and always wanted to. But uh, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and just that you know, Jeff Kent, the Oxford 250, I'll let Ricky elaborate on more. It's like 
stop me if I'm saying it wrong, Ricky, it's the Daytona 500 of the Northeast. It is. I think it's, you know, it's the equivalent of um, the Snowball Derby or, you know, any, any significant major race across the country, short track race. And, you know, short track racing has always been the sweet spot for me. And I think most, most drivers, because most of us started in the same place, uh, you know, as far as the discipline, that type of racing. It's unique uh, you said that. We had uh, Bubba Pollard on the show a while back, and Bubba, mm -hmm. uh, with all the races he's won around the country, short track racing, one he he noted his one of his most significant wins was the Oxford 250. So isn't that remarkable? Because this is a you know that's a name that anybody that races half mile or smaller racetracks for a living would say, you know, for to hear that from Bubba Pollard is quite an endorsement, right? Yeah, uh, he's a heck of a racer. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go back to you, that you you went to the Oxford 250. Yeah, and it was a race that I wanted to win, obviously, and and uh, and um, and did in 1991. The irony of that, and I'm 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 fast forwarding, but I became very close friends with your brother Kenny in the late 80s, and uh, we were competing with each other around the country uh, a few times a year up in Montreal. Uh, in Tennessee, uh, in Nashville, um, uh, Cincinnati. And uh, Kenny came up, uh, well, he called and he said, Ricky, we need a place to work on our car. And so he shared our little tiny building in Concord, New Hampshire. We raced Oxford and uh, and we won that race with our, with our team, uh, in, in a Bush Grand National, Bush Grand National North race, I think we carried out $53,000, $54,000. And then the next week, Kenny and Steve Bird and the and 36 team won at New Hampshire, and he carried out another fifty-five or sixty grand. <laughs> and we thought we had robbed the bank. <laughs> <laughs> you guys were loaded up on cash there, weren't you? you got par party, uh, was, party Central was, in the Northeast. <laughs> I, I guarantee you, Mike, if you mention it to Kenny, he'll go on for 20, 30 minutes because it was, it was just that it was that much fun. He and I hung out for, for two and a half weeks and we both, and we both won the two major races that summer. And, uh, it was, it was a really, it was a blast. Well, that's great to hear. You know, Kenny just won his first, uh, short track championship this past Saturday night. Racing Did he really? That is incredible. Racing at Kenny Schrader's I-55 Speedway. He's all the races he's done over the years. He's never ran somewhere every week to win a championship. And, oh, my God, he's blowing up wow. his, his social media pages with people. He says, look, I'm just paying respect to short track racing. I love it. You know, and just like he's still talking about it. So it's uh, Well, his enthusiasm in the last 10 years for, for, for that, 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 that discipline of racing – has been enormous and so contagious. Everybody chases Kenny. And, uh, you know, when I think of that, Mike, I think about you and how, how incredibly dominant you were back in the Midwest in the early days. And I, and, and Kenny told me, you remember when, uh, Kenny had his little go-kart track behind his house? Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and everybody who that, was that turned into a time. major event, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, it, it was like it was really like the it was like the Legends Car Series before there was a Legends <laughs> Car Series, except it was it was behind Kenny's house, and 
there was nothing for 40 or 50 drivers or wannabe drivers to be there uh, on any given night. But I remember the best I'd ever seen on dirt. And Kenny told me this even before you and I met, but the best I ever saw on dirt, Kenny Wallace's dirt race track was, was Mike Wallace. I mean, man, you could wheel a car on dirt. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, I, uh, I had the pleasure to go back and do that a couple of weeks ago, Jeff Kent. You know, I told you well, I went back. So that's why Rusty West, wasn't he the one that said <laughs> that he actually beat you in a go-kart? Oh, yeah. He was very proud of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and another guest on, and uh, the gentleman who had uh, sponsored my race car at uh, Indianapolis in 2020. And so it's fun to go back and, and talk about the past and the histories of and how everybody come about. But, you know, the great part of we're sitting here talking and you and Kenny and myself and, you know, all of our guests have ha had cool upbringings in the sport and excited about it. Tell me about that 91 season. That was a pretty spectacular season for you in, in the Bush North series, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. I don't, it, it was the uh, it was the type of year that uh, propelled me to the next level. So, I may not be on the mark statistically, but uh, I know we had a total of twenty one races in nineteen ninety one, and they were uh, single Bush Grand National North events and combination events with the with the South. Uh, we won ten of those races, and I would say the most memorable would have been toward the end of the year maybe it was the last race of the year the chevy dealers 250 at new hampshire uh it was a new track it was a big track for new england it was the biggest track a one mile track uh so it felt like a, a super speedway to us and i battled harry gant and chuck bound in the last 20 laps for the win and if you remember to that particular time that that that, that timeline First off, Harry Gant was one of the best short track racers I ever competed against. But at that time, he had won seven consecutive Winston Cup Bush Grand National races. Do you guys remember the Mr. October? Mr. October, yeah, that's where that and uh, and uh, and we uh, and we battled him in the middle of that uh, for the win. Wow! Now help me remember this. I think I remember. Did that car? I remember. I I believe I watched that race on television. Mm -hmm. And didn't you have something? Just I call it humorous, but it was cool because you were you were the yeah. man. You were winning races everywhere that year. But didn't you have something like on the dashboard, like a a a missile switch or a machine gun <laughs> switch did. around the battery or something that it was like you had something made up that had everybody confused. Yeah, there was a switch, and uh, above it, it said "kill," and it was, and then below it, it was like machine gun. Or, but I, I always, it was all for fun. It just stuck on there. There was nothing wired to it, but it was a switch, and it was something that the, the team and I created. Uh, it was, it was a frame of mind. It was an attitude, and it definitely applied in that race in particular, but it, I think it applied in several of the races that year where if you're in a position to win and it comes down to two or three or four of you, I think the greatest contributor to the, to determining the outcome of the race is, is how bad do you want it and who wants it the most? And 
when I say that, the first person that comes to mind would be Dale Earnhardt. And Dale Earnhardt did things inside the car that most drivers weren't willing to do. And he did it to probably everybody he competed against on some level, but he would, uh, he had no conscience and, and I didn't drive like that, but I did have, at least back in, in, at that time, I had the, I had a fierce attitude and, uh, so it was all in fun. Well, that, that must have come from that first or sa- first win at Unity Raceway where he hit everybody on the way through the field, right? <laughs> hit everything but the ladies. Like that. Yeah. So the yeah. 1991 NASCAR Ricky Craven Bush Grand National North Champion car would that be number 25? That's correct. Yeah, right. yeah. We had uh, we had two cars and three engines, and I it was a, just an incredible year. I I mean I I had no money. You can buy and that diecast right now for eight ninety five on eBay. That's a deal. I'm looking that's at I'm looking at the photos right now. <laughs> yeah. Ricky, it was fun. Thought, listen, this is Mike, you can relate to this, I'm sure. I remember going to the Oxford two fifty the year before and I bought I had the crew buy three sets of Goodyears, twelve tires, and that was gonna be for the whole weekend. And it's a guy named Dick Dimmig who ran uh, the Goodyear distributorship up in New England. And I wrote him a check. And he says, this check good? And I just winked. And I said, it will be. <laughs> there were 100 cars, and they, and they only qualified 36 spots. And, and people talk all the time about how much pressure there is when you get to the Winston Cup level. But I'm telling you, there was a lot of pressure back then. I had to qualify to pay for the damn tires. Yeah. Can you imagine that, Jeff, rolling in and trying to make a 36-car field today and there's 100 cars there? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's... You better have a good car and some confidence to go with it, right? Yeah. (laughs) Technically, technically I wrote a bad check. But by the time the banks opened, I had the money to cover it. Yeah, well, he sounded just like my older brother. He used to write them bad checks all the time. <laughs> it didn't bother him. He just would tell the people up front, he says, look, if you put this thing in, in the bank before Tuesday, it's going to bounce all the way back to your office. <laughs> and, because he had to get paid from racing that weekend and make sure he got the money in the bank, you know, in time to cover the check. So, uh, hey, you had to do yeah. what you had to do back then. Th- those were your cars then, I assume. You owned that whole program when you in that Egypt. Bush North cars? Yeah, every bit of it, and I was, uh, and I had, I had equity in every aspect of it. I, I really, truly did live, breathe, eat the, the business, and uh, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I just saw a friend a few w- weeks ago who built an extraordinary car, and he built a car for Rusty, I believe. He built cars for Mar- uh, for uh, Alan Kowicki. Uh, and he was like a Michelangelo of chassis builders. His name's Dennis. Dennis Frings. Frings. I knew exactly. Dennis Frings. Yeah. And uh, Dennis TIG welded his cars when everybody else MIG welded, and I think he saved 12, 14 pounds because he used less material. But it, but it, they, the cars truly looked like jewelry. I mean, just beautiful cars. And and I scraped up enough money. I think it was $10,400 to have him do a rolling chassis. And that's all the money I had. Uh, but it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Oh, so at that time, really, and I'm a little bit versed on this, you, you had a, a car a little bit ahead of your time then at that point. 
Yeah, there were others. You know, I I I watched uh, drivers when I was a kid, like for instance Joey Carafas, who was an excellent racer in New England, and uh, and a champion, an NASCAR champion. Uh, Joey had uh, a fringe car back in the late seventies, um, and then a handful of drivers had fringe cars up in New England through the eighties, and then uh, and then we got one in the in the like late eighties, but. Uh, Dennis was expensive, but he was, but for a reason. I mean, he he, he was worthy of it. it uh, he only built a few cars a year, and uh, he wouldn't compromise on anything. Yeah, beautiful cars, beautiful cars. When I first moved down here, Dennis Frings, I ran into him at a car show. I'd never met him. Always heard his name. And, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of like idolized the guy, but didn't know him. But he had on display an 8N Ford tractor that was all chromed up, the wheels chromed on. And I thought, yeah. here's a guy who yeah. took an 8N Ford tractor, you know, and he made it look cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, he must be pretty good at race car building. But, uh, hey, let, let's hold it hold it at that 8N Ford tractor, and let's come back and pick up on Ricky Craven. Look, there's the halfway from the flag stand. We're talking to Ricky Craven. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Brady Mechanical Services, HVAC install, maintenance, and repair. Brady Mechanical Service at gmail.com. We just got in to the Bush North Series. Uh, talking to Ricky Craven. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, Ricky, in 91, that was your, uh, I call it, and tell me if I'm saying it right or wrong, that was your breakout year in NASCAR bush racing, bush north racing, right? Absolutely, yes. You you were the man. Everybody knew who Ricky Craven was. You had that little machine gun switch on your race car and scared the heck out of everybody. And uh, take it from there. You won the championship. You won the rookie of the year. And if I may compliment you, you know, I was reading all your, you know, histories back and forward. You won a rookie of the year in every class you ever raced in, didn't you? Yeah, a few. Yeah, uh, it yeah. Was, uh, it, was, it was all of them, just to let you know that I could yeah. put together. <laughs> yeah. So congratulations yeah. on that. So after the '91 season, what goes on with Rookie Craven Motorsports? Where does it progress so, on to? So at the, at the end of the year, uh, we won at the, uh, at New Hampshire in uh, a battle with Harry and uh, Chuck Bown. The next week, I made my cup debut for Dick Moroso, who tragically lost his son uh, a short time earlier. And Dick, being a Connecticut guy and uh, and uh, a New England guy, he connected with me and, and asked me to come race his car. The, the real value of that was being with Dick and Buddy Parrott was our crew chief, which, you know, what a, I mean, I just, a phenomenal first experience. Phenomenal. I, uh, I couldn't have raced with a more sincere guy, a more knowledgeable guy, a more, uh, patient and cooperative. And, uh, but I knew after that race at Rockingham that I had some work to do and Dick all but begged me to go to Atlanta the next week. And I said, you know, I just, I just don't think I can do as good a job for you as somebody else. You know, that, uh, for instance, Buddy Baker was toward the end of his career and he wasn't racing. I was like, he, he could help you. I, I just, I got to learn these tracks. And I always sort of had that sixth sense, Mike, about, you know, a, a driver's responsibility is to understand the limits of the car, 
understand the limits of the track and then understand your limits as a driver. And I knew nothing about those big tracks, nothing. So I needed a, a couple of years of Bush Grand National, which is what I did. Gotcha. Well, you know, if I may compare a note, last week we had Mario Andretti on the show. And how did he say that, Jeff? The car has got to talk to you. Yeah, you have to I think you've got to become one. It, it was just, yeah. just, with the car. Just That's the way you said, said it was <laughs> another form of how he said it. So great, good job. So you, you, yeah. you had that opportunity with Moroso. Then you, the following year, decided to stay in the Bush Grand National Series then? Yeah, so rookie of the year ninety two, and then we and then we finished second in points in ninety three. Our second season at the end of ninety three, I was approached by Bobby Allison. Ironically, you know the same, roughly ten years after he gave me his hat in Victory Lane at at Unity Raceway, and he said, "I want you to come drive the twelve car, um, Ray Bestis car," and. Uh, I was just beside myself, but I met with Bobby three or four times. I said, there's one hurdle we have to clear. I've been taking money from Chevrolet. They've been very good to me and, uh, or general motors. And can we switch to GM? And Bobby had a pretty strong deal with Ford. And he said, no, it's, I can't. So the deal disappeared. It dissolved. Herb Fischel, who ran the GM Motorsports, heard about this and said, Ricky, I promise I'll have you in a cup car in 95. Toward the end of 94, we're battling for the championship. Uh, it came down to three of us at the end of the year, and uh, we lost by a few points. But we had secured a deal to, to race in cup with uh, Kodiak and Larry Hedrick. Gotcha. Okay. I remember that time. So who were the other drivers you were racing with in the Bush so Series? The rookie, oh, in the Bush Series, it was David Green driving for Bobby Labonte and Chad Little. So the three of us pretty much battled all year long. And it came down to the last few laps at Rockingham. Um, we Let's see, I was, I was leading the race. Um, Mark got by me, and I think Harry Gant got by me, and I finished third. And... Uh, I can't remember how many points David won by, but it was um, it was just a handful. Them Man, green, them green fellows, they were pretty good back in the day, right? Yeah, they were. The Green yeah. Brothers really were. They were a lot yeah. like the Wallace Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they seem to have a little more success than we did. Well, we have we had an older brother that did pretty good though. But uh, so tell us about mo moving into uh, was a '95 driving for Larry Hedrick. I really liked Larry. He was kind of a cool guy. He was always had a Fabulous. had a, a cool conversation and. He had yeah, the he, Kodiak car. He also didn't he own a car auction and a baseball team and all that stuff at the time. He or, did, Mike. He he owned the Statesville Auto Auction. He sold it to Mannheim. Mannheim was buying up auctions across the country, and uh, Larry was still committed to the uh, to the site and working with Mannheim. But he built a race team. Uh, I remember Larry as the eternal optimist. He was so easy to be around. And at, uh, when we entered the season, we were competing against uh, Robert Presley, who was in uh, he was driving the Skull Bandit car. Harry had just retired. Had Davy Jones, who was an excellent road racer. Had Steve Kinzer driving for Kenny Bernstein, and uh, everybody identifies with Steve Kinzer. We had uh, Randy LaJoy, 
uh, Gary Bradbury, you know, Randy was an excellent racer. Gary was, uh, was a successful racer in Alabama. And anyway, we had quite a crop of rookies and, um, and that was, I felt like the weight of the world on my shoulders. I, I wanted the rookie of the year so bad because I knew there was only one shot and, uh, it was a good battle. Yeah. And what, why did you want that rookie of the year battle so bad? Just because the meant you were best of that group or just because you'd want a rookie I, of the year everywhere else you've raced? I don't know why, Mike, but I remember all the rookie of the years, drivers, you know, going all, going, going back a long way. And, and uh, I, you know, just, I, you know, it was my first opportunity to join a list of my heroes. And uh, so I was, you know, I, I was, I was certainly inspired by that and, and motivated by it. And uh, I had Waddell Wilson as my crew chief, and he was very much like racing with, uh, very much like racing with Buddy Parrott. That one race I, I ran with Morosa, he was uh, he was very composed. He had had a ton of success. He's a Hall of Famer, and he was very patient with me. And uh, I was the opposite of patient, whatever that is. You had but no it, patience. They, no, they, but if, they don't but even if, sell but, that at Lowe's. We've tried to buy it. You there wouldn't before. have made a good doctor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we struck a good balance. We really did, and. Uh, and we had a solid year. Yeah. So well, I would say if you won Rookie of the Year, 1995 Winston Cup Series Rookie of the Year, and you finished 24th in points, right? That's pretty damn good. Well, it doesn't. You know, 24th doesn't sound that that significant, but it was. Uh, you yeah. know, when you when, when we think back to it, Mike, there we we raced against. Well, first off, when you get to the Cup Series, uh, everybody there is a champion of something, and. The degree of difficulty changes to the extreme, and I remember it like you know they were. Well, you, you know, think Ricky, about it. Back in 1995, wins wins were being uh, gobbled up by the likes of Jeff Gordon. He won seven times. Dale Earnhardt, Sterling Marlin, Mark Martin, Rusty Wallace. There's your top five right there, and each one of them won multiple races. That doesn't right. leave a whole lot of races for the yeah, rest. Yeah, no, and it know? doesn't. And you know, I never, <clears throat> I never won a, a cup race like Ricky has. But to make myself feel good, Jeff, I used to. It didn't matter where I finished. I, uh, you know, I didn't run very well uh, a lot of times. And you know, you can blame it on talent, or you can blame it on team quality, whatever. But I remember always going to like autograph sessions and somebody go, well, how'd you finish last week? I said, man, I run 33rd. <laughs> and, I'd be, and I'd be happy about it because I was trying to mentally make myself feel good, you know. And then I go, look, there's only 42 drivers in the whole world. I mean the whole world to get to do this. I was 33rd. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy goes, yeah. oh, you'll be better next week. Don't worry, man. It's good. <laughs> go get you know, there was another. There was another component to it, though, that you're being very humble, Mike. Very humble because... <laughs> I mean, you know, you also know what you did when you climbed in that 12 car and, <laughs> and, uh, and battled for wins. But, but if you think back to that particular era, and Mike, we raced in the greatest era of NASCAR. There's no disputing it, in large part because of what Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt and Rusty and Bill Elliott, Mark Martin, what they all created for us. But you, you just mentioned there were 43 cars started every week, but there was another 15 
that went home. You're right, right, without it's, a doubt. It was incredible. The the fields were very full. There was under pressure all the time to get in the races. And uh, you're right, Ricky. That was we were damn pretty all pretty good at that time, weren't we? We're pretty pretty good and pretty lucky. Yeah. Hey, no, so there's no doubt about it. And what Ricky said, and I always tell race fans or have told race fans, and I've been a race fan for a long time, Ricky. But um, you know. Uh, you tell when somebody in the stands, you're sitting in the grandstands, and somebody says, "Oh, that guy sucks. He's no good. He can't drive." So every one of these guys is a track champion from somewhere. Think about yes. it. Just to make the field at one of these races, do you know how good you have to be? People don't understand that as fans. Jeff, let me tell you. Let me tell you just really quickly, and to expand on what you, the point you're making, is Mike Wallace was a NASCAR champion earlier in life in, in the lower series. But so wasn't Ted Musgrave, a champion in like ASA or, you know, the, the, the late model series. Ted Musgrave was a hell of a racer. How about Rick Mast? How about Dick Trickle? Uh, Kenny Wallace, uh, Todd Bodine, Mike Skinner. These are, got, these are drivers that might not be in the wind column in, in, in cup, but they were capable. They just didn't, they just, the planets didn't align for them, but my gosh. And these are guys that might've finished 20th or 25th or 30th because they didn't have the best car, but boy, there were no pushovers in the Winston cup field. No, I, I believe, as you said, we were, uh, how did you say that? We were in the prime time. We were in the, we were in the greatest era of the greatest era. I really believe that. Yeah. I I agree with you. I believe that as well. Yeah. hundred percent. So one thing about this show that's great besides Joe, uh, Jeff's driving career, you know, he was a <laughs> championship legends driver. He he understands NASCAR. Oh, racing. yeah, Ricky. Yeah, no. Champion, no. Uh, I had a few top fives and one feature win. Thank you. And, but, then, I, and then I retired. But he understands racing, and he, he's a big fan of the sport at the same time, so... All right, so we're you made me feel good, and I'm supposed to make you feel good. So we're all feeling good today here because of what we did early in our careers. There's a so, ton of talent in this room. Yeah, I'm just so <laughs> the, the Larry Hedrick story, and I just wanted I, I love hearing it, and if it's not to be discussed, just let's move on. Is there something that they were have so happy with you or thought they wanted you so bad that they supposedly gave you an ownership position in that team, or did I read that wrong? So Larry gave me... Uh, in, in our second year, we started with uh, a, good, a good run at Daytona. We finished third at Rockingham. We battled Jeff Gordon. Uh, we went door-to-door the last 80 laps with Jeff Gordon for the win at Darlington. And uh, we got off to this smoking start. And I think eight races into this our second season, we were third or fourth in points. And Larry couldn't really afford to match some of the numbers I was getting offered from a, a couple other teams. And that was, and you know how that works, Mike, that happens in the garage area when nobody's looking. Uh, but what he could do was offer me equity position in the team. We made that agreement. Uh, we announced it. I didn't sign the contract because there were parts of it that I still wasn't comfortable with. And while, uh, while the pen was laying on the table, I was approached by Ray Evernham, said, look, Kenny's leaving. You really ought to talk to Rick. And I didn't have to talk to Rick. He called me the next day. Um, 
or I didn't have to call him. We connected and Rick offered me the opportunity to drive the Bud car. It broke my heart because Larry was such a close friend. He was like family. Um, but selfishly, I had to do it. Can I tell you, I'm so happy for you because I tried one of those loyalty things early in my career. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I, I should and I should have just went for the go for the better deal and you did at Hendrick Motorsports. How did you say that earlier, Jeff? He he went from Hedrick to Hendrick. To Hendrick. All he did was buy a yes. consonant. Buy a consonant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on that, we'll take a time out, come back and bring it home. We're talking to Ricky Craven. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Brady Mechanical Services, HVAC install, maintenance, and repair. Brady Mechanical Service at gmail.com. Just a couple of more laps with Ricky Craven. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. So we just found out to improve your career, you buy a continent and you move from Larry Hedrick to Rick Hendrick. That's consonant. Oh, con You said yeah. continent. Yeah, but, but listen, listen Look. I, had, I had visions of making enough money to buy a continent. <laughs> See, everybody always worried about the particulars and details. Consonant, you know, so. continent, what the hell? Close enough. You know what I'm saying. He got another letter or whatever. <laughs> so you moved to Rick Hendrick. Tell us all about that. So at the time the Bulls were dominating the NBA and, and Michael Jordan was the best. And I went to Hendrick Motorsports, did a lot of media surrounding it. And people would say, are you the next Jeff Gordon? Now, and I was so uncomfortable with that because that was a pressure I did not want. And uh, I knew how good Jeff was. I had competed with him earlier in life and I knew that you probably weren't going to be better than Jeff. You could only hope to be as good. So I would tell people, no, I, I told people and, and you could Google it. I, I, I told the media, no, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with being Scotty Pippen because Scotty Pippen was pretty damn good, better, better than what he got credit for. And at the time I just wanted to win two or three races a season. I, I won, I wanted to win one. And we got off to a good start. We were third in the Daytona 500. We were top five the next week at Rockingham. I remember going to the third race of the year. Jeff's leading the points. I'm second in points. And pretty early on, I don't remember when, but but Texas, um, Texas was a disaster. I uh, I during practice, um, we were toward the top of the board. We were making a qualifying run. I went wide open through one and two. And the next thing I remember was waking up in a helicopter. Um, I signed my next of kin at Parkland Hospital. And my career was, I feel like my career was uh, disrupted for three or four years because of, because of that incident that day. And, well, um, I, I know one thing. We're glad you're here because I remember that day I was at that racetrack and you hit so incredibly hard. It's just, uh, I mean, I remember that in all sincerity brother. that mm. um, we're glad you're here because it, it could have turned out real easy the other way. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. I, I mean, 
drivers don't like talking about it, but uh, everything is much easier to talk about when you're retired. And um, it was the most miserable time in my professional life. It was it was the most difficult time in my life, without question. And and I'm humble enough to tell you that I I had lost my vision. Um, I could see color, but I couldn't focus on anything. I had blood coming from my ears, and uh, and I was I was all beat up. And I laid in the in the Parkland Hospital, praying to God that I would survive whatever happened. I couldn't make any sense of it, and uh, and and by the grace of God, I came out of it, and uh, and eventually was given another opportunity and that would be the tide car and uh and capitalize on it boy talking about capitalize on it because we're if we don't get to it we're going to run out of time we can always go back in conversations but the tide car darlington right that was something and i just i I just watched the video of that yesterday because i wanted to relive it i was there as a race fan i went to that race yeah Uh, what an exciting 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 race that was was amazing it was yeah and and everybody knows everybody knew ricky craven already but it's like you became a household name on that given day after those what was it? Four or five laps of battling at the end, back and forth, lead mm-hmm. swaps, and then one of the and then the, beat, the beat greatest finish in NASCAR history. Uh, you tell it from your your view, Ricky. Go go. Tell us where you're at and four or five to go. I don't think I could have won the race if two things hadn't happened prior to that. Number one, I had won at Martinsville a couple of years earlier, so that took all the pressure off. Winning the first race is the most difficult of your career. Uh, the other thing is a year earlier, I won the pole at Darlington. I had always run well at Darlington, but I hadn't mastered the concept that the lady in black, the track too tough to, to tame, really does control the event. Every hey, hey, can I stop Sunday. you for a second? Because I, I, I screwed this show up already. In what way? Let's go back to Martinsville, your first win. I mean, I, that, okay. I had a note. I wanted to talk to you about your first <laughs> win. And here I'm getting so excited Rich has got a board built. It's got you behind me on it. It's like, damn, yeah, I'm ready. So tell me about yeah. Martinsville. Tell us about their first win, what you felt like after you won your first cup win. So we started this discussion uh, centered around Speedway 95 and Bangor, uh, Unity Raceway, where I got my first win. The Oxford 250, which was was among my most significant victories, all of those somehow contributed to me in the last 20 laps at Martinsville, uh, battling and holding off Dale Jarrett, who was a champion. And uh, we had uh, we had led the most laps that day. Um, uh, Mike, I remember how well you ran that day. You you were worthy of uh, of contending for the win that day. And uh, we battled Jeff Gordon. Uh, but late, it came down to Dale and I, and he, he took four tires on the last stop. We took two. We got track position. And the last 10 laps at Martinsville were by far the best 10 laps I had ever run in my life. And I, I, I really believe they were a residual of those, all the short track racing I had done in New England and Canada and Quebec and Montreal. Um, you know, that was my... That was my forte, and uh, that was a hell of a battle. 
So, so after you ran the, the best 10 laps of your life and you come off a of turn four and the checkered flag's waving, the thought was at that point what? When I went under the checkered flag, it's going to sound like a cliche. It's going to sound corny, but hand on heart. I've got my hand on my heart right now, and I'm telling you, when I went under the checkered flag, when you consider that most thought my career was over after the wreck at, at, at Texas, including me to some degree, when I went under the checkered flag, time stood still. I am serious. It, time stood still for two or three seconds. It's like it just froze. And I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted from my shoulders. For the rest of my life, I was a Winston Cup winner. And it's, it's really terrible for some people listening to this. They'll have a, a disconnect and say, really? But it's terrible to try to qualify it at 56, but cause I can't because when you're in, when you're, when you're in the moment and when you're racing, if you lose, or if you don't think you have the equipment to win, it just, it's a miserable existence. I had the equipment. I had the opportunity. I was hired. I was given a one-year contract in 2001. Uh, we lost our hero, Dale Earnhardt at the very first race of that year. So, so there was uh, the beginning of the year was shrouded with uh, a lot of uh, discomfort. And in October of 2001, we we closed the deal and it changed my life. Man, that's that's outstanding. And it, that's Jeff, a great that's a great story. I mean, especially coming back from everything you come back from. I mean, all the the, the bad crash that you didn't know how well you were ever going to be. And here you're you're a race winner, a Winston Cup race winner at that time. So. Uh, Congratulations. Now, now let's I, fast now forward fast and go. We're, we, we went through the last 10 laps at Martinsville. Now you got to take us to the yeah, last so now five you, laps or so. You had qualified on the pole at Darlington before, and now you're yeah. back at the racetrack. Yeah. Now go live. <laughs> so the same race, the same car, uh, but with a Ford body the year before. We won the pole. I woke up in 2002. I was convinced I was going to win. We were that strong. Uh, we battled Steve Park and Jeff Gordon the first, say, the first 50 laps. I mean, we really went at it. And Jeff kind of backed off and let Steve and I just swap blows. And we were, we were hell-bent on leading, Steve and I. And Steve and I go all the way back to New England. We, we, I mean, we grew up together. And I have the highest regard for Steve, just a great, great guy and a really good racer. And we, we committed a cardinal sin, both of us. We came up on Stacy Compton to put him down a lap, and we were preoccupied with with leading the damn race, and the three of us wrecked, battling for the lead. It was ridiculous, and I punished myself for a year over that. Uh, when we came back, we qualified like thirtieth uh, in a Pontiac, and Scott Miller, my crew chief, after uh, Friday's. Uh, qualifying and then Saturday's practice, he said, man, what do we got to do? And I said, we're good. I mean, he goes, we're good. <laughs> I can see that. I said, You're 30th on the board and we're good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I said, I said, Scott, I know he will confirm this. Of course we won the race, but easy to confirm. But I said, Scott, 
this damn car does not slow down. It's no, it's, it's, it's not a rabbit, uh, but it's certainly not a tortoise either. I mean, it, 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 the car just, it has such great balance. I've always wanted to have a car like this at Darlington. And I'm telling you guys, I don't remember getting passed except twice in the, in the whole race. I got passed early in the race by, by uh, Tony Stewart, who, who must have qualified worse than me. And I got passed by Kurt Busch with three laps to go or two laps to go because I jacked him up in turn, turn one. Other than that, the Tide car marched forward methodically all day long. With 20 laps to go, I had Kurt in my sight, and I really felt like I could catch him and beat him. And all hell broke loose. So uh, you've probably watched this thousands of times, if not people have brought it up to you. So three to go, what's it looking like? Yeah, I've, 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 I've definitely saved my tires. I've got a better car than Kurt. But I got to get by him. I got a hell of a runoff of turn four. I get along beside Kurt. I know he's going to lift because nobody races you into, into turn one. You, you do the crossover in turn one. He didn't lift. There was no way we could get through the corner side by side. I slid up into him. He hit the wall. He smashed the gas and, 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 and ran into the back of the, the tire car. He picked the rear tires off the ground. I, I saved it. He went by. I think most people considered him the winner at that point. And I had about a lap and a half to reel him in and, uh, and capitalize on what had been my strength all day, which was three and four. Turn three and four, I had sort of mastered. Uh, lift early, go back to the accelerator as soon as the car compressed into the corner. And... Um, and really kind of climb the banking and, and, uh, and throw the car on the right rear. I saw Kurt on the last set of turns on the last lap, spin the tires. And the moment I saw him spin the tires, uh, I was full throttle. I gave it all the wheel I had to, to, you know, to the left to grab the apron. And then the debate begins. Did I slide out into him or did he come down into me? And I think it was a combination of the two and, and we just kind of beat the heck out of each other all the way to the start finish line. Well, I'm gonna tell you what, it doesn't get much better than that. Oh does it, my Jeff? god, that was exciting! Yeah, yeah. What's well, it's cool, really, really good, Ricky. For that, you you did so good for the sport that day by putting on such a driving clinic. You you and Kurt Busch, and then winning that race by such a close margin, still the closest in the history of NASCAR. And I found out that it is also. Did you know, Ricky? That was the final. Pontiac win for you were the final driver to win for Pontiac in NASCAR. I I did know that, and I and I and I even thought about it during the year because there were a couple of Pontiacs in the field, and and Johnny Benson being one, and Johnny was very legitimate in the Valvoline car. Uh, but I I I was grateful that we were had the distinction of winning the last race in NASCAR for Pontiac. I have that car. Cal Wells had it uh, completely refurbished to uh it's a piece of jewelry and he gave it to me as a retirement gift so so, uh, so is that car priceless or got a million dollar price tag on it it's both of those <laughs> both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Ricky, I, Jeff Kent and I both like to say thank you very much for spending your afternoon with us and uh, the race fans around the world because, man, you brought me right into that race. I've, I'm racing the last two laps here. No, that was good. And exciting. That and, was uh, good. I was excited, too. As uh, as we Jeff says, uh, the fans are going to want for more, so hopefully someday you'll come back and join us on another show. Guys, thank you so much. I appreciate both of you for all you've contributed to the sport and uh, really enjoyed being with you today. Well, thank you. You bet, Ricky. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. We'll see you next week.